A word before we get started with today's episode of NTM Talk. While it may go without saying, it's important to remember that all views expressed in this podcast are the opinions based on the experiences of the participants and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have questions related to your own health, please contact your provider. Hello, and welcome to another episode of NTM Talk, where we have in-depth discussions on non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease and bronchiectasis. I'm Dr. Colin Swenson. And this is Wendy Drummond. And today we're going to dive into the diagnosis of NTM lung disease. We've covered a lot of ground over the past month or so, Wendy, and we're finally getting down to the nitty-gritty of diagnosis and treatment. That's right. And as Colin and I chat with each other before these episodes and really try to to think through our plan. And we do a lot of that, folks. (laughs) Yes, we do. The fun part. I know. And and I'm I'm sure it's, it's very apparent to all of you how polished this is oh, so uh, terribly, <laughs> terribly so yes we're, yeah yeah we're, we're deciding a lot of these things as the episode unfolds yeah, that's right but the thing that Colin and I have been talking about and I think we referenced it in one of the last two episodes is that there there were new guidelines that were published yes in July of 2020 so in the midst of a pandemic and of course uh, these were about 13 years in the making so I don't want to make it sound like all the sudden we're going to publish in the pandemic. They've been planning this for some time, but we're we're really going to use that, I think, as a template for our discussion today. We sure are, and and it's important to note that the that the 2020 guidelines that are literally, as you just mentioned, hot off the presses, they really build on the 2007 guidelines. So they don't necessarily undo anything that we were already doing per the 2007 guidelines, but they do have a couple features that are that are that are new, and so we'll definitely talk about that. Now, Wendy, do you want to sort of give us a a brief summary of where we've been over the last month? I'm happy to do that. So we really talked, we've had the opportunity to discuss bronchiectasis, I think, in some fairly detailed discussions. And I think people can see that we're really trying to build with each episode. You know, we're trying to lay a nice foundation of knowledge that we can build on with each episode, but also with this opportunity to tease out different topics in more detail if based on questions and response to prior episodes, we feel like it's warranted, and also just to to build on the existing information that we've put out there. So, so far, we've talked about bronchiectasis. We've talked about etiologies of bronchiectasis, typical clinical symptoms. And then uh, we did, in one of our more recent episodes, we really gave an introduction to NTM lung disease, which initially felt like a fairly daunting episode until we realized that, you know, (laughs) we we realized that we can take as much time as we want to tease out, to tease out some of these topics. Yeah. We really didn't want to make it overwhelming for, for, for listeners. We wanted to really sort of break this apart into digestible pieces. We talked about symptoms of NTM lung disease. Uh, We talked about how long it can take for people to get diagnosed, you know, years Mm -hmm. uh, without knowing they have existing disease. And then we started laying the foundation for talking, what we're really going to talk about today is digging in a little more deeply into how do we establish this diagnosis? And, And one of the more common questions that patients ask of, well, how do you know I have this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And I think you're, I, I think one of the, the points that you've made in a prior episode, and we did talk about this, was that the symptoms of NTM lung disease are so similar to other underlying lung conditions that sometimes uh, the diagnostic journey can be pretty long. It can, and it, it's just fraught with frustration, uh, first and foremost for the patient, but a lot of times for their primary managing physician who's really struggling to try to achieve some symptomatic improvement for these patients. Mm -hmm. And some of the symptoms that we did talk about on that front were uh, the most common uh, symptoms of NTM lung disease. So chronic cough, certainly fatigue, crushing fatigue we talked about. We talked about shortness of breath, dyspnea and exertion. Um, What are some of the others? Certainly, the the profound fatigue can be one of the sentinel symptoms for a lot of patients. Uh, A lot of times, it's just this um, intractable, insidious cough, but people can also have night sweats. Uh, fevers and chills, which which really may more may mimic more of a TB like presentation. That unintentional weight loss, I think, is uh, mm. something that's a key question that physicians can ask their patient. And the night switch, which are really pathologic, where the patient just wakes up soaked in sweat. So, Colin, I, I think this is something that we get asked a lot by. Uh, providers for sure. We certainly get asked by patients, but knowing that a lot of times you're going to be one of the first people to see these patients because you're going to get that referral to your pulmonary clinic. At what point do you suspect NTM lung disease? It's a really good question. And I think we talked about it in a past episode, but in general, it's the chronicity that I listen out for. How long have the symptoms been going on? Do they wax? Do they wane? Have the symptoms gotten better with treating the underlying lung disease or are the symptoms persisting? Also, I want to know sort of, we talked about the FEV1, the amount that someone can blow out in one second is sort of the vital sign of lung health. Is that declining over time? And lastly, I always like to know, is the patient happy with his or her quality of life? If, if the answer is no, and a lot of these other symptoms are present, especially the symptoms we just covered, like weight loss, unintentional weight loss, that is, uh, low-grade fever, night sweats, and cough, then I think it's important to consider NTM. And I understand that when you're a hammer, the world is a nail, but I don't think it's something that takes a lot of brain power to consider. It should be on the differential diagnosis, and it's really not hard to diagnose it. And I think we discuss why it's so important to establish this diagnosis in the sense that it can be progressive over time, meaning that it not only can cause progression of symptoms, but it can cause a decline in pulmonary function, and it can... Absolutely, it destroys the lung tissue. And it can destroy the lung tissue, thereby causing more bronchiectasis, potential progression to cavitary lesions, which can make it much more difficult to treat. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's probably a nice uh, transition into talking about how we test for NTM lung disease, because that's really going to lead to how we establish the diagnosis. That's right. And uh, with the guidelines, like we mentioned, the 2007 guidelines established three different criteria for diagnosis. And those criteria are the same in the 2020 guidelines. Number one is certainly the clinical symptoms that we talked about, the cough 
the fatigue, the weight loss, the night sweats, the coughing up blood, the coughing up sputum, this type of thing. You've got to have the clinical symptoms. The second diagnostic criteria that, that is outlined are radiographic findings. So a CAT scan of the chest that shows the typical findings of NTM lung disease, usually bronchiectasis with the tr- so-called tree and bud nodularity that some of you may have seen on your radiology reports. And lastly is the microbiologic criteria. You've got to have the supporting microbiologic culture criteria to isolate the NTM species and hopefully also get some drug susceptibility testing. Yes, all of those are are key features. And I think this really gives us an opportunity to really tease out some of these things because, you know, one thing I tell my patients is that it's really important to, to have all three of those, or to meet all three of those diagnostic criteria, meaning that they have symptoms. And we talked about the different constellation of symptoms already. They do need to have the supporting radiographic findings and the supporting microbiology. But I think what's really important is to, once again, know that we're treating, we're evaluating each patient individually. And just because they may have all three criteria that support a diagnosis of NTM lung disease, that does not necessarily translate into an urgent need to treat our patients. And I think that the new guidelines tease this out a little bit better than perhaps they did back in 2007. They do. They do indeed. And I think that there's more of an emphasis on early treatment, actually, in the in the newer guidelines. And also the newer guidelines also establish a role for aerosolized liposomal amicacin, or aricase, in the treatment of refractory MAC lung disease. And so the, the guidelines definitely have some, some updates, but they keep the core principles of the 2007 guidelines that you mentioned. So those three diagnostic criteria. But I think to your point, Wendy, it's really important when you start talking about treatment of uh, of the NTM lung disease, that the patient really understands what that entails. It's really important. And we always initiate that discussion and say, what are the goals of treating NTM lung disease? I mean, you and I certainly can, can review treatment goals, symptom improvement, quality of life, potential radiographic improvement, culture conversion, Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is a patient no longer tests positive for NTM bacteria in their lungs. We know the huge psychological impact of that. But even more importantly, I ask patients, you know, what are your treatment goals? What are, what are you trying to get out of this? That is so important. And I think that that's one of the key pieces that's oftentimes lost in the discussion. I think that there's such a push oftentimes to just go for microbiologic cure that oftentimes we forget to ask patients, what is your goal in treatment? Do you want just symptomatic improvement? Does it matter if the sputum converts to negative? Do you want radiographic improvement? So all of those, all of those can be can be treatment goals, but it's helpful to outline those before treatment starts. Well, and I think it's really helping to understand what's going on in your patient's life also. I, I had a high-level executive who coughed in her meetings, mm-hmm. right? And so you get a lot of looks. Mm-hmm. People are, our patients are concerned, like, well, I'm, I'm out and about and people look at me like, like I have something that's communicable. Now, this, this was pre-COVID era, era. And she just wanted to be able to get through a meeting without coughing 
and feeling embarrassed about that. That was her goal number one. And her goal number two was that, well, she thought it scared her grandchildren, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So these are very personal things to our patients that they're experiencing in their everyday life that's so impactful on their quality of life. Yeah, I've had similar patients who are teachers, who are lecturers, college professors, um, certainly executives, and the cough, the fatigue can be very crushing, but certainly the cough can be very embarrassing and disruptive, particularly right now in the times that we're in, in the COVID pandemic. Um, So many patients are avoiding any sort of public interactions at all, not only because, you know, to keep themselves safe, but also because they don't want to be mistaken for potentially having COVID. Yeah, exactly. It's the the dynamic has changed a lot, even just in the last several months. Now, you, you mentioned the factors to consider before embarking on treatment or right after diagnosis. And I think that you pointed to the patient's desire and ability to, to handle the, the treatment. Um, but, but I think you also would agree that really describing what the implications are of the radiographic findings or the spirometric findings, these are the pulmonary function test, or the clinical symptoms are to, to the patient's uh, clinical trajectory. For example, just knowing that there's their desire and ability to potentially undergo treatment, there's other aspects to this, such as their underlying medical conditions and their comorbidities, other medications that they're on, potential drug interactions, uh, how the monitoring fits into their life. And these are really long discussions when you when you entertain the possibility of starting treatment. You know, it's, it's really trying to, to paint that landscape of expectations. It's so important that they know what to expect. And I'm so glad you mentioned monitoring because I, f- I think that that is something that's often forgotten in the, in the treatment of, of, of NTM. These patients are treated with uh, multiple antibiotics that can interact with other medications that they're on, as you mentioned, um, but it can also cause derangements in their blood count. Some of them can cause hearing changes, can, can cause vision changes in some cases. And so um, it's important that monitoring, regular monitoring be done and that that schedule be conveyed to the patient. Yes, I, it's, it's really a partnership that we establish with our patients right out of the gates in terms of setting expectations. And just a lot of patient education is so important right up front. Agree, agree. And the diagnosis piece of it, and I I think that this is a a question I get as well from patients. So they, for instance, will have, let's say, one sputum culture that ends up growing MAC and they get diagnosed with MAC. It's important to note that that the diagnostic criteria, both the 2007 as well as the 2020, uh, you really need to have two separate sputum samples that grow the same NTM species. So in this case, MAC, Um, or one bronchoscopy specimen, either a wash or a bronchoalveolar lavage that is positive for the MAC. Um, Or you can have a tissue biopsy. So some patients are sent for surgery um, and end up having a piece of the lung. Usually it's a nodule removed, and that needs to show something called granulomatous inflammation, and the tissue culture ends up growing MAC. I think that in patients who do undergo bronchoscopy to establish the diagnosis, sometimes it's a situation where 
it's a patient who's really not experiencing a lot of productive cough symptoms, cough productive of sputum, and they're more unable to obtain either an expectorated sputum or even an induced sputum. But one thing I do want to point out is what what we do like is that if you do have a positive culture from the bronchoscopy, it's always nice to always have a separate positive culture. It's not always possible, especially with those quote unquote dry bronchiectatics, but certainly preferable, right? Mm -hmm. And we did talk about that, the the type of patient with mild bronchiectasis, or as I mentioned, a patient with bronchiectasis and COPD related to smoking, that unfortunately, they're just not able to bring up a sputum sample. And so these patients oftentimes will have a screening CAT scan or a chest X-ray that shows some nodularity, and that leads them to bronchoscopy. So uh, that's one way that it can be diagnosed. But, But again, you want to make sure that there are actual symptoms of the infection there as well before embarking on a discussion of treatment. Yes, it's really important because I, I do see a lot of patients in my clinic that'll come from a pulmonologist's office where they were they were sent to my office because they had a bronchoscopy, even potentially for something completely unrelated to anything under consideration of a pulmonary mycobacterial disease. But lo and behold, they have a positive bronch specimen. And so how, what do we do with that information, right? So that the patient comes in and it turns out that they're not having any symptoms at all. Mm. In review of their CT scan, they may have negligible findings that would support a diagnosis of NTM lung disease, or they may have some very subtle findings. So in the setting of that positive culture, I'm probably going to monitor that patient absolutely, and monitor them closely. So once again, even if we're not actively treating someone, that doesn't mean that we're not actively monitoring that patient. So Wendy, what does monitoring mean for you? Like for instance, take that patient you just described. How often would would you monitor that patient? And how would you monitor? Well, once again, I think it depends on what else is going on with that patient. You know, some of our patients have underlying rheumatologic diseases and they're on chronic immunosuppressives. So that might be a patient that I'm going to see more often. You know, I might see that patient every three months, for example. Whereas if I have a patient who just has a solitary sputum culture, you know, I may have them follow up in six months or so. So I think uh, a lot of my decision making is, is based on what's specifically going on with that patient and what other comorbidities do they have? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the comorbidities, as you mentioned, are really important, particularly if they're on uh, agents that can suppress the immune system. That's uh, That would certainly be more of an indication to embark on treatment early, even if there aren't a lot of symptoms. That is a change from the 2007. Um, and the other changes uh, that, that are noteworthy on the 2020 guidelines are, of course, the addition of Aricase uh, for patients with refractory uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease. What that means is persistent positive cultures six months after being on continuous treatment. And the other other thing too is earlier treatment if the patient is experiencing a, a decline in their lung function, if radiographically, if their CAT scan is showing worsening bronchiectasis, um, or if their sputum, when they bring it up, is actually smear positive, not only not only culture positive. 
Colin, I think that's a, a great overview of, of those changes. And the other thing that I would mention is that, uh, and we'll talk about this in a lot more detail when we really get into the nitty gritty of treatment, but I think one of the new updates that stood out to me, and it's really been, I think, our standard of practice for a while, is preferential use of azithromycin um, as the preferred macrolide in starting three-drug three treatment. That's a great point, Wendy. I, I don't know about you, but I get a lot of patient referrals uh, from community physicians who actually start patients on clarithromycin. And uh, the patients almost always show up in clinic. They've lost weight since starting on you know the treatment. Most of them tell me that they that food just doesn't taste the same. That's right. Um, do you get that? Do you get that too? I get that all the time. It really does cause that taste arrangement. I do think that patients report more gastrointestinal side effects. Um, the, the other thing is that it is a twice daily medication. So just in terms of trying to simplify our medic medical regimens for our patients, it's really nice when they can take something that's once a day. Yep. Yep. And I, it also has fewer drug interactions. So I think for all of those reasons, they made that shift. A uh, good point. Yeah, azithromycin seems to be much better tolerated than clarithromycin. Like you say, once a day is a whole lot more convenience, especially when you're talking about compliance. And thirdly, some research has shown that there's actually less inducible resistance of MAC with azithromycin over clarithromycin, right? Yes. When you look at the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, I think that's a really important point to make. And, and what I mean by all that weird pharmacospeak is that... <laughs> pharmacospeak. <laughs> is... Pharmacobabble, people. <laughs> yes. So you know, when, when we talk about it takes a village to take care of our patients, our pharmacists are actually very important. And it's certainly important in, in the world of NTM research and really understanding how we optimize management in our patients. And that'll certainly be a much bigger discussion in another chapter or episode of our podcast. But uh, things to keep in mind in terms of how the drugs are metabolized by any individual. Um, every individual is different. And in this era of personalized medicine, we do recognize that there may need to be adjustments in the dose of medications, frequency, etc., the only other thing I would mention, Wendy, is that if patients feel like they are not getting their questions answered, if they feel that the treatment is is doing more harm than good, or if they feel that it is time to treat, but their provider doesn't feel it's, it's uh, met that threshold yet, it's important to note that there are providers in the community who specialize in NTM lung disease. Yes, and that can either be a pulmonologist, such as Dr. Swenson. That's a plug for me. Yeah, yeah. Or it can be an infectious disease specialist. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is that 99.99999% of the time, it's probably going to involve someone in each discipline to help mm -hmm. co-manage our patients. Absolutely. Because when it comes to discussing pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, I'm not the guy. <laughs> yes, I'll be able to take that on in a separate episode. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Wendy, this has been a great discussion today, and thanks so much for this information. I really look forward to our next conversation on NTM treatment. It's always great talking to you, Colin, and be safe, everybody. 
If you have any questions about the updated 2020 Diagnosis and Treatment Guidelines, you can find them on our website, ntmtalk.com, where you can also stream our past episodes and leave your comments and questions, which we look forward to answering on future episodes. You can also find links to helpful resources on NTM and bronchiectasis. Well, thanks again for joining us, everyone. And until next time, stay safe. Bye.